Last week, we began the discussion of the Four Noble Truths, which is the last of the contemplations in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. We explored the Noble Truth of Dukkha, which is the Pali word for unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, for the ultimate ultimately unsatisfying nature of conditioned phenomena. So tonight we'll continue discussing the Buddha's instructions on the second noble truth. This is from the text. How does one contemplate dhammas in terms of the four noble truths? Here one knows it as it really is. This is dukkha. One knows as it really is. This is the origin of dukkha. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. So that description of the origin of dukkha comes from the very first discourse the Buddha gave after his enlightenment. So what is the origin of dukkha? Craving. Craving for sense pleasures, for existence, for non-existence. It's really this powerful force of craving in the mind that keeps the whole wheel of samsara going, this whole wheel of conditioned phenomena. What drives it is the force of craving. Buddha said, monks, I do not envision even one other fetter, fettered by which beings go wandering and transmigrating for a long, long time, like the fetter of craving. So this is a powerful, seminal force in our lives and in the world. So what is craving, and how do we actually experience it, both in our lives and in our practice? Craving is the translation of the Pali word tanha. And tanha means thirst. Sometimes it's, it's described as the fever of unsatisfied longing. You know, and in English, we have, that, we have the expression, thirsting for something. Even when it's very elemental, thirsting for water, or thirsting for food, or thirsting for something to happen. And it gives a sense, just that word gives a sense of the compelling force, the compelling power of craving. It's this quality of thirsting. And it's just the opposite of peace. It's the opposite of the coolness of peace. Now, we often use the words craving and desire synonymously. But this can sometimes be confusing because the word desire in English has several different meanings. 
Sometimes we use the word desire to mean that thirsting, that craving that is rooted in greed. But sometimes we use the word desire to refer simply to the motivation to do something. We have a desire to do and a desire to accomplish some aim. So this is not necessarily craving, even though we're using the word desire. This desire to do can be either skillful or unskillful, depending on the motivation associated with it. But in the context of tonight's talk, I'm going to be used use the word desire and craving synonymously. So in the context of tonight's talk, when you hear desire, think of that particular kind of desire, which is that craving, that thirsting. The Buddha spoke of three kinds of craving. Desire for sense pleasures, desire for existence, or what's called the desire for becoming, and the desire or craving for non-existence or non-becoming. Now the first and the most obvious of these is the desire for sense pleasures. It's what we're most familiar with. This is desire for sights and sounds, smells and tastes, pleasant bodily sensations, Desire for those sense objects that are pleasant, that are agreeable, that are desirable, the ones that we wish to happen. We might also include in this desirable for pleasant mind states, you know, and think of the mind as the sixth sense. So all of this, this craving for sense pleasure, desire for pleasing objects, this is just our usual engagement with life doesn't seem particularly special or even noteworthy. Enjoying and wanting what is pleasurable, avoiding as best we can what is disagreeable. So left to our own devices, we would probably just go along in this cycle. It seems so ordinary. But the Buddha right here begins a very revealing analysis of this situation. He didn't condemn sense pleasures as being sinful. So that's not part of the teaching. Rather, in his quest for enlightenment, he used an introspective scientific method which led him to ask some very basic questions about his experience. And the first question he asked was, what is the gratification in the world? So he just looked. He looked at his experience, he looked at the world, asked the question, what is the gratification in the world? And as a young prince, he himself had enjoyed thoroughly all the various strands of sense pleasures. You know, they were not foreign to him. And then, as recounted in the discourses, the thought came to him, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. If there were no pleasure and joy in the world, beings would not become enamored with it. So it's precisely because there is a gratification, there is a joy, there is a pleasure, 
that we become enamored with the world, that we desire or crave these sense pleasures. So rather than simply listen to the Buddha's words here, you know, and let them pass through, I think it's helpful to follow his lead and really ask ourselves the same question. So we look at this question deeply. We don't just consider it in a superficial way. What is the gratification that we find in our lives? What is the gratification in our world? What sense experiences are we enamored by? So we should look carefully at this. This is a question that led to the Buddha's awakening and maybe it would lead to our own. So when we look, you know, what is the gratification in our lives? We see that the joys and pleasures and cravings come in a wide range of intensities and frequencies. On one end, you know, there might be obsessive cravings. Those desires that really obsess us in our lives, they, they might be addictive cravings you know, for food, for sex, for alcohol, for drugs, for success, for power, for wealth. Might be cravings for possessions, for fame, for comfort, even craving for love. Now, these can all become obsessive. And when we look at the world's literature, a lot of it is about just these passions, in people's lives. And in so many ways, our culture fosters and values this kind of craving. How many email spams have you gotten where the tagline is, increase your desire? You know, as if somehow <laughs> this is a good idea. You know, and this is something we should aim for. And I saw one magazine ad, you know, which, which really captured at least American culture, and said, instant gratification just got faster. Shop Vogue.com. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so this is the message that we grow up with. We may have many of the same kinds of desires but perhaps not on an obsessive level. You know, we don't feel perhaps addicted by them, but still as the driving force behind many of the choices we make in our lives. So it's worth looking. What are the cravings? What are the pleasures that drive our choices? What moves us to act? we really need to wake up to this so we become conscious of it rather than simply be carried along on the very powerful habitual energy of these desires and cravings. It's a powerful force in the mind. It drives our lives. So we want to begin to look to see, okay, how is it unfolding? We can also watch craving just as a passing thought of wanting in the mind 
you know, not some big obsessive thing or not even kind of a strong, you know, major desire in our lives, but just a passing thought, a passing want, a passing desire. But it's very interesting to watch how deeply rooted and persistent even these little desires can be. And on retreat, it comes up a lot, and I've had many experiences you know, of being on retreat or off. And I'll have the thought, oh, a cup of tea. And then I'll watch the thought come and go, I don't need it. Cup of tea. No, let it go. You know, and I feel proud of myself in the moment for actually renouncing the desire. Oh, cup of tea. Let it go. Oh, cup of tea. <laughs> Let it go. More often than not, note it, note it, note it, get it. <laughs> you know, it's like the desire is just there, just waiting for the slightest bit of opening, and we act. It's a strong, habituated force. These different patterns of craving, of desire, of wanting, are so familiar to us, they just seem like the very ordinary fabric of our lives. They're so much a part of who we take ourselves to be that largely they remain invisible until we bring some mindful awareness to them. The retreat environment is very conducive to really looking at and becoming aware of desire and craving on all of these levels, the very strong ones, the momentary ones. In the undistractedness of this environment, we can really see clearly the gratification that comes because just as the Buddha said, there is a gratification, there is a joy, there is a pleasure from different sense objects. So we see that. We see the gratification. Then we see the craving that arises because of that. So as part of your practice during the day and night, notice what you become enamored by. Just you're going through the day, Watch what pulls your mind. Watch what desires arise. And notice the craving that can follow. You know, it might be the enjoyment of pleasant fantasies and wanting them to continue. You know, it could be enticing sexual fantasies or just sitting and enjoying, or food desires or maybe fantasies about relationships. How many yogi hours have been spent lost in the fantasies of Vipassana romances? You know, whole relationships played out in the mind where we don't even know the person. It's all just a creation you know, of our own thought process. Now, at some point of investigation and awareness and self-reflection, it's possible that we can begin to resonate with the Buddha's words when he said, whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. 
So he looked. He looked to see what is the gratification. He investigated, okay, I've seen the gratification that is possible. So have we come to that place yet? Or are we still holding out hopes for some new and unexpected gratification of the senses that may come our way? It will only be one of six things. It will be just another sight or another sound or another smell or another taste or another sensation or another pleasing mind state. How many do we need to experience before we can say whatever gratification there is in the world, I have seen it. But the Buddha did not stop here. He didn't stop with his understanding of gratification. He then asked the next very probing question. O monks, I set out seeking the drawbacks in the world. Now drawbacks, again, is the translation of a Pali word, adinawa, and it can mean drawbacks, it can mean defects, it can mean disadvantages, it can be, mean dangers. You know, so it's, it's all those things. I set out to see maybe what colloquially we could say the downside of things. Right? What's the downside in our experience in the world? So the Buddha went on, and whatever downside there is in the world, that I have found. Namely, the world is impermanent bound up with dukkha, subject to change. So what the Buddha is here calling the downside or the drawbacks of the world is precisely that first noble truth of dukkha that we talked in some detail about last week. How many of us, though, when times are good, when we're enjoying the various joys and pleasures of our lives, and the joys and pleasures of the world, how many of us have enough prescience or foresight to stop and consider, in the midst of the joys and the pleasures, what are the drawbacks here? Is there a downside to this? Are there disadvantages to craving? This is from one of the Buddhist discourses. He said, People who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures, who are devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, who burn with the fever of sensual pleasures, still indulge in sensual pleasures. The more they indulge, the more their craving for sensual pleasure increases, and the more they are burned by the fever of them. Yet they find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment in dependence on the five chords of sensual pleasure. Is that us or not? You know, we're not free from lust or desire for sense pleasures. There's a feverish quality often to them. Yet we find a certain satisfaction and enjoyment in dependence on them. 
So we need to look, we need to ask just as the Buddha did, what, what are the defects? What is the downside of this? It's not a question of just kind of hearing the teachings and you know, taking it on faith. It's all an invitation for us to look at our own lives and to see for ourselves. So there are several ways of understanding what we could call a downside or disadvantage of craving for sense pleasures. First, they don't, in the end, deliver on their promise of happiness. We believe that the experience of different sense pleasures will bring us happiness because of the pleasant feelings that arise. You know, in the sense pleasures, we do have pleasant feelings. And it does bring us happiness for some period of time. The problem is that the pleasant feelings are very impermanent, and sometimes momentarily so. And sometimes they last a little bit, but they inevitably will go. Sometimes they're really just a momentary hit. The pleasant feelings that we experience are arising and passing away. They change and disappear. They just go one after another, after another. And what's amazing, when we consider our lives, you know, in an effort to keep getting another hit of sense pleasure, another hit of pleasant feelings, we go after, after, after them, and then our life is over. And what have we actually gotten? It's like trying to quench one's thirst by drinking salt water. You know, it only makes us thirstier. It doesn't actually quench our thirst. So we should look and see how many pleasant feelings have we already had in our lives. How many different sense enjoyments you know, have we had? Countless. And in that way, we're quite privileged. You know, so much sense pleasure is available and that we've experienced. And yet we never come to a place of completion. We never come to a place of fulfillment. It's always wanting and waiting and anticipating the next one. So how much of our lives and our energy do we want to invest in this pursuit? It's endless. Now most of us do live our lives as lay people, so we're engaged in the world. We're engaged in the world of sense objects, of sense pleasures. You know, we're not practicing the life of a monastic renunciate. And so we do enjoy the sense pleasures that are there to some extent, but still, I think for most of us, there is a deep knowing within us that ultimately it's not the way to peace. Because if in some pl- deep way you didn't know that, you wouldn't be here. You know, it's not really the place that people come for a vacation. Dharma practice opens us to possibilities of a much greater happiness in our lives. And I think we all have a sense of that. 
This is again from the Buddha. Formerly, when I lived the household life, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with the five cords of sense pleasure. On a later occasion, having understood as they really are the gratification, the defects and disadvantages, and the release in the case of sense pleasures, I abandoned craving for them. I removed the fever of them, and I dwell without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. There is a delight apart from sense pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. So that's kind of a beacon for us, you know, of a happiness much greater than our usual mode. So the first drawback of relying on the gratification of sense pleasures for our happiness is that it doesn't ultimately accomplish our aim. That's the first drawback of it. That's the first downside. It doesn't do what we hope it will do. The second danger is that when craving becomes a strong and powerful force in the mind, it can lead us to many unwholesome actions, creating more unwholesome karma. You know, we know how many crimes of passion, you know, the newspapers are filled with craving leading to unwholesome action. Buddha laid out nine things rooted in craving. So I want to read them. And just as, as I read them, see which ones, you know, we can understand as having some relevance to our own lives. Some will, some won't. But they're all rooted in craving. Monks, I shall teach you nine things rooted in craving. Listen and attend carefully. Because of craving, there is pursuit. Because of pursuit, there is acquisition. Because of acquisition, there is decision. Because of decision, there is desire and lust. Because of desire and lust, there is selfish tenacity. Because of selfish tenacity, there is possessiveness. Because of possessiveness, there is avarice. Because of avarice, there is concern for protection. And for the sake of protection, there is the seizing of weapons and various evil, unwholesome things, such as quarrels, strife, dissension, and offensive talk, slander, and lies. These are the nine things rooted in craving. So I find it interesting to look in this regard, not only on the personal level, but on the national level. You know, how many of these things that were mentioned including the taking up of weapons, you know, for the sake of protection, because of avarice, and the unwholesome things such as quarrels, strife, dissension, slander, lies. (laughs) How much of international discourse is rooted in these things rooted in craving? And then we can look in our own lives. 
would be an interesting investigation to look when we're feeling in some uneasy relationship. We're feeling some frustration, we're feeling some possessiveness, we're feeling some strife, some dissension. Just to look, let that be, let that be a mindfulness bell to look to see what is the craving underneath it? What is it that we're thirsting for that is leading to that result? So there's the disadvantage of craving in that it doesn't accomplish its aim. It leads to many unwholesome actions. We can also see the disadvantages of craving just in the way we undertake our meditation practice. Have you noticed times at all of expectation in the mind? A wanting some pleasurable experience, expecting that to happen, or expecting a present pleasant experience to remain. Now the danger here, and this is worth looking at, is that the expectation, the wanting, always brings about a quality of agitation in the mind. The craving, the wanting, the expectation always creates suffering. What makes this kind of craving so particularly seductive is that it often comes disguised as aspiration. You know, we think we're having this noble, aspira- noble dharma aspiration. But when we look more carefully, it's not aspiration at all. It's just wanting. It's just craving. And these two states are very different. It would be worth looking carefully so that we can distinguish them clearly. Aspiration, the aspiration for awakening, the aspiration to arouse compassion. Aspiration always inspires us. Expectation in the mind, this wanting in the mind, the wanting of craving, just locks us into cycles of hope and fear. Hope that what we want will happen and fear that it never will happen. And that's what expectation does to us. When we have the courage to investigate the drawbacks of the world, the downside of our experience, even in the midst of our various gratifications, our various joys and pleasures, when we have the courage to look deeper, to enlarge the scope of our vision, it can lead us to a wiser relationship with the world. And the Buddha pointed this out very directly. He said, if there were no downside, if there were no drawbacks in the world, beings would not become disenchanted with the world. But because there are drawbacks, beings become disenchanted with them. Now it's interesting right now and illuminating to watch our reaction to this teaching. 
How are we relating now as we hear this to talk of the downside of things, the disadvantages of things, the drawbacks, the dangers? You know, when we hear those words as a suggestion for something wise to do, how do we feel? How do we relate to the idea of disenchantment? Does it seem gloomy? You know, does it seem fearful? Why would I want to do that? Or when we hear these words, you know, this Buddha's probing question, what is the downside of things? Does it depress us? Or does it bring about a sense of openness, a sense of relief in the possibility of seeing things more completely? It's helpful to look a little closer at the word disenchanted. So we're talking about becoming disenchanted with the world. What does disenchanted mean? It means to wake up from a dreamlike state of ignorance, a dreamlike state of enchantment. And this is what happens in all the great fairy tales. The wicked witch, you know, puts somebody in a spell of enchantment and then at the end, something breaks the spell, and we wake up to a greater reality. So just as an example of how this might work, imagine yourselves you know, on a beautiful beach. The sun is out, you know, and the ocean looks very inviting. And you're running across the beach, kind of anticipating just diving into the beautiful ocean and the waves. And then all of a sudden you see a sign, a warning sign, caution, dangerous undertow. Do you feel angry at the sign or angry at the ocean for having an undertow? Or do you feel a sense of relief now knowing the danger, knowing the caution, you can actually be at ease acting wisely you know, and appropriately in that situation. Opening to the drawbacks, opening to the downside, actually makes our relationship to the world more appropriate. It makes for a wiser relationship because we're seeing the picture more completely. Again, this is from the Buddha. O monks, I set out seeking the gratification in the world. Whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the gratification of the world extends. I set out seeking the drawbacks in the world. Whatever drawbacks there are in the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the drawbacks in the world extend. I set out seeking release, freedom from the world. Whatever release there is from the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far freedom from the world extends. So we need to take care here how we understand these words, particularly the phrase release from the world freedom from the world. It could conjure up someone 
you know, release from the world or escape from the world, could conjure up someone unable to cope, you know, derelict in their responsibilities and indifferent to the world around them. That might be one way we hear these words, the Buddha saying, I have found release from the world. And many people in the Buddha's time had just these thoughts. You know, they would sometimes call the Buddhist monks shavelings, which <laughs> is a great word. <laughs> you know, well, there come the shavelings, suggesting that they were kind of simply freeloaders, you know, escaping from the world. I had a little experience of this myself in the years that I was in India, when I finished college and then was in the Peace Corps and then spent so many years in India. So my immediate family was fine with it, but my extend, some members of my extended family, you know, what is he doing there? Most people were you know, going to graduate school or getting a job, starting a family, and there I was just sitting around ostensibly not doing anything, just sitting, watching my breath. I would get these letters, you're killing your mother, <laughs> come home. <laughs> but as you know, once we're deeply connected with the Dharma, it becomes the most meaningful context for everything else we do in our lives. The release from the world, the freedom from the world, is not indifference. It's really a release of freedom from ignorance. It's a release of freedom from the forces of craving and aversion and delusion. And this kind of freedom, this kind of release, makes possible a much truer relationship. We really can be of genuine service. And this, of course, is the great aspiration of bodhicitta. You know, that wish, that aspiration, may I awaken from ignorance for the welfare and benefit of all beings. That's what freedom from the world means, or release from the world. It's the release from ignorance. Bodhicitta then manifests as this amazing quality of compassion. So I want to read just, it's a little Zen dialogue that captures the relationship to the world when we're released from it, when we're free in it. And I'm not sure I'm going to have the pronunciation right, but it's a dialogue between two people, Yunyan and Dao Wu. Okay, so Yunyan asks, why does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, you know, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, have so many hands and eyes? She's often represented as you know, a thousand hands, a thousand eyes. And Dao Wu says, kind of, Zen fashion, which is very hard to understand. It's like reaching back for your pillow in the dark. Yunyan says, I understand. 
And Dao Wu asks him what he understands, which I'm glad he did. <laughs> and Yunyan says, the whole body is covered with hands and eyes. Okay, the whole body is covered with hands and eyes. Dao Wu says, almost. Almost right, but not quite. Yunyan says, then what do you say? And Dao Wu replies, there's nothing but hands and eyes. You know, and I know that this did for you what it did for me, <laughs> but it was just, it just took away the sense of anyone doing compassionate action. All that's left is compassionate action. The whole sense of self is gone when we awaken from ignorance. So all that's left are hands and eyes. There's nothing but. Okay, so we've talked about a lot about desire for sense pleasures, the first kind of craving. The second kind of craving the Buddha talked about goes even deeper. And it's the craving for existence, the craving for becoming. This is the basic urge or desire to be, to exist. It is a desire for continuing existence, particularly in pleasant realms. You know, and we may or may not believe in the Buddha's teachings on rebirth and planes of existence. But for us, there's also a much more immediate way of experiencing this kind of craving, the craving to be, the craving to become. We can see it very clearly in the planning mind. Now, what happens when we're planning, especially when we're lost in planning? We're imagining ourselves in some future situation and then engaging in all the thoughts and actions that will get us there. Just notice how often during the day we get lost in the mind creations of a future self. I'll go here, I'll do that, I'll be this. Our mind is just creating these future scenarios. The Buddha gave some very specific and challenging instructions in this regard. So it would be interesting to see if we can apply them. He said, not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. Instead, with insight, see each arising state. Not craving after past experience, nor setting one's heart on future ones. Not bound up in desire or craving. Not craving after past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones. What would it be like to live like that? I think it would be a radical change for how we do live. And on an even more momentary level, we can see this craving for becoming in our relationship to the unfolding process of the mind and body itself. So just notice, and I think this is probably familiar to you, notice how often it's as if we're leaning into the next moment, as if somehow the next experience, the next breath, the next sensation or thought will resolve everything will complete everything. It's as if we're always waiting for the next thing, as if the next thing will, ah, 
then will be complete. It's what I call the in order to mind. You know, and I'm sure you've seen this when you're mindful, supposedly mindful, watching unpleasant sensations. How often are we watching unpleasant sensations in order for them to disappear? We're not just aware. We're aware with an agenda. Or we're with some emotion in order to open further. Or in order to feel it more deeply. Again, we're not there simply in the moment with what's arising. We're there to become something else. This is craving for becoming. We forget that liberation is not about becoming anything. It's not about getting anything. It's not about holding on. It's not about craving. It's not about clinging. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint, expressed it very succinctly. He said, try to be less, not more. You know, this, this craving for becoming is always to become more. And the whole process of liberation is to become less, to let go. This is from one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters of the last century, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. He said, if we have interesting experiences, either during or after meditation, we should avoid making anything special of them. To spend time thinking about experiences is simply a distraction. These experiences are simply signs of practice and should be regarded as transient events. We should not attempt to re-experience them because to do so only serves to distort the natural spontaneity of mind. All phenomena are completely new and fresh, absolutely unique and entirely free from all concepts of past, present, and future. They are experienced in timelessness. So that's the possibility for us when we're free of craving. Either craving for sense pleasures, craving for meditation experiences, craving for becoming. All phenomena are completely new and fresh, absolutely unique, and entirely free from all concepts of past, present, and future. They are experienced in timelessness. Okay, so the first kind of craving is the craving or thirst for sense pleasures. The second is the craving for becoming, craving for existence. The third kind of craving the Buddha talked about is the craving for non-existence. This is the sense, life is so bad, this experience is so bad, if only I could not be. You know, it's not wanting to be, it's wanting to not be. There was a time in my practice, and I, it's a time of having a lot of dukkha, you know, a lot of suffering. And at that time, Michelle McDonald, was colleague, was going through similar things, and we formed what we called the Dukkha Club. <laughs> and we just kind of commiserated with each other about our suffering. And we had a theme poet. He's, I think he's either Central American or Spanish, I'm not sure his name was Dario. 
And there was one line from one of his poems which was our theme, and it really expresses this craving for non-existence. The first line of this poem was, Oh, to be a stone with no feeling at all. And so that's, Michelle and I would just remind ourselves of this. But this craving for non-existence, no less than the craving for sense pleasures or existence, is still rooted in the belief in the view of self. It's a self that doesn't want to be. Now the writer Wei Wei, he described the absurdity of these cravings based on self, based on ego. He said, destroy the ego, hound it, beat it, snub it, tell it where to get off. Great fun, no doubt, but where is it? Must you not find it first? Isn't there a word about catching your goose before you cook it? The great difficulty here is that there isn't one. And so we spend so much of our lives revolving around this ego, craving for sense pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. Wei Wei went on to say, whoever thinks that they exist objectively is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. So we need to see this for ourselves and to understand this. The great discovery in practice is that on one level, birth and death, existence and non-existence, self and other, are the big defining themes of our lives. But on another level, it's just the dance of insubstantial appearances. It's the magic show of consciousness. Everything that we think is so real, everything that we take to be self. So I want to read just one little piece about this magic show of consciousness. And it comes from a book called Why We Feel, The Science of Human Emotions by Victor Johnston. Okay, so just as I read it, it's a few minutes long. Just try to visualize the world it's describing. Consider a world without consciousness. The darkness is a bubbling cauldron of energy and vibrating matter locked in the dance of thermal agitation. Through shared electrons, or the strange attraction of unlike charges, quivering molecules absorb and emit their characteristic packages of energy with the surrounding fog. Free gas molecules, almost oblivious to gravity, but buffeted in all directions by their neighbors, form swirling, turbulent flows or march in zones of compression and expansion. A massive solar flux and cosmic radiation from events long past crisscross space with their radiant energy and silently mix with the thermal glow of living creatures. 
Within the warmth of their sticky protein bodies, the dim glow of consciousness is emerging to impose its own brand of organization on this turbulent mix of energy matter. The active filter of consciousness illuminates the darkness, discards all irrelevant radiation, and in a grand transmutation, converts and amplifies the relevant. Dead molecules erupt into flavors of bitterness or sweetness. Electromagnetic frequencies burst with color. Hapless air pressure waves become the laughter of children. And the impact of a passing molecule fills a conscious mind with the aroma of roses on a warm summer afternoon. Uh, I like that description because it just highlights that the world of our experience is the magic show of consciousness. It's not that there's substantial self-existent reality to it. It's our consciousness which is gathering in or interpreting or filtering all of this energy of the universe and creating the world. So on the early morning of the Buddha's enlightenment, when his understanding of the Four Noble Truths was complete, it said that the first words that came into his mind after his awakening, what we could call the song, his great song of enlightenment, he said, realized is the unconditioned. Realized is freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. That is the nature of the free mind. Achieved is the end of craving. So we need to look at this noble truth of the origin of dukkha, the force of craving in the mind. See how it plays out on all the different levels we discussed. And then we come to appreciate the Buddha's statement, achieved is the end of craving, which is precisely the discussion of the third noble truth, right? the end of dukkha, which we'll discuss in the coming weeks. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you.